0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Shannon Spaulding assistant professor of philosophy at Oklahoma State University. Her new book, How We Understand Others, Philosophy and Social Cognition, is just out from Routledge. Social cognition includes the ways we explain, predict, interpret, and influence our interactions with other people. The dominant philosophical theories of social cognition, the theory theory and the simulation theory, have provided focused accounts of mind reading the practice of ascribing beliefs, desires, and intentions to others in order to predict and explain their behavior. In her new book, Spalding draws on social, psychological, developmental, and experimental psychological research, and kindred spirits in philosophy to argue for an expansion of this traditional focus in her theory, which she calls model theory. My reading includes other methods we use to understand others, such as stereotypes and scripts and other goals of these practices, besides prediction and explanation, such as strengthening our in group social relationships. She also explores some of the implications of her view for understanding issues in epistemology and ethics, in particular, the issue of epistemic injustice. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Shannon Spalding. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, Carrie. Thanks for having me. Your new book, um, How We Understand Others, Philosophy and Social Cognition, kind of gives a nice, very nice overview of the state of play in terms of the mind-reading Literature and also puts it forward. I think a bit in terms of incorporating a lot of the new insights in recent years into into a particular new version, I guess, of the theory theory as you as you describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get into the details of the book, maybe you can say a bit about your background in in philosophy and then how you came to write this book.
1: Yeah, sure. So. Um I started out interested in social cognition when I was a master's student at the University of Arkansas, but that was just nothing that I had the space to explore. So I read um, Sean Nichols and Stephen Stitch's book, Mind Reading, just sort of on my own and found it really, really interesting. Uh, but I had to wait until I got to my dissertation stage at the University of Wisconsin to actually explore it in more detail, which was many, many years later. Um, So I've been thinking about these issues for a while, and my dissertation was on this topic. Um, In 2015, I believe, I was on a research fellowship at the University of Edinburgh, and I was having lots of conversations with Suilin Lavelle, who also works on social cognition and philosophy, um, about this Sort of strange disconnect in philosophy um, from social psychology. So philosophers and psychologists, in particular developmental psychologists, and even some sort of um, psychologists who study uh, chimpanzees and such, um, they work really well together, and their uh, their literatures kind of overlap, and they reference philosophers and psychologists, but left out of this picture nearly completely is social psychology. And part of that is just that they have a really different terminology and really different methods. And there's some sort of, um, some concern about the replicability of some of the research, but there just seem to be even beyond that, this kind of like not, um, talking about or talking with social psychologists at all. And so Sui Lin and I were talking about this and sort of thinking through um, ways that you could get the social psychology and incorporate it without this already very robust interdisciplinary research. And so the idea for the book came in that fellowship in 2015, sort of talking through some of these ideas with people who thought about it as well. Okay.
0: Um so maybe we should begin where you begin which is in a way a p- kind of brief review of where philosophy has been uh in terms of mind reading. It's as you as you mentioned the the mind reading literature in philosophy for a long time for a number of decades kind of uh rolled along on its own not really affected you know too much by what was happening in in social psychology so what what is that that mind-reading literature maybe just to give a brief description of of what philosophy was doing um over the past couple decades you know the the whole idea of folk psychology um and what sorts of you know specific things were meant by mind reading and what specific things were the
1: goals of mind reading? Sure. So uh, the literature starts in earnest with the um, animal psychology literature. So um, back, way, way back in the 70s, I suppose, um, there is this concern that um, all of the experiments that were trying to test whether um, chimpanzees specifically have the ability to understand other chimpanzees' um, mind, whether they understand and attribute uh, mental states, like beliefs, for example. All of this literature was infected with the problem that you couldn't tell whether it just looked like they were attributing mental states. And there was some um, uh, behavioral explanation that actually was not mentalistic that was available. And so what happened was that Daniel Dennett was involved in this uh, research and he came up with the idea of the false belief task. And the false belief task um, is this really ingenious task that tries to localize whether or not somebody really, or somebody or some, some animal has the concept of belief. And the basic idea is that if you can attribute a false belief to somebody that is, if you infer that somebody perceives the world in a way that it really isn't, then that is a sufficient bar for attributing to you the concept of belief. Because if you can understand that somebody has a false belief, then you understand that there's a way in which the world really is, and there's a way in which this person or this animal conceives of the world, and that's really different than those can come apart. So if you can grasp that someone can have a false belief, then this is sufficient for uh, attributing to you conceptual knowledge of belief. So Daniel Dennett comes up with this just purely conceptual idea of an experiment. And Joseph Perner and Ted Ruffman, who are experimental psychologists, um, find out about this idea, and they actually experimentally test it. And it turned out to be a really useful experiment, and um, the false belief task has basically just been the, the founding experiment of this literature on mind reading. So mind reading, just uh, for those who, who don't already know, is the ability to attribute mental states to other people in order to understand their behavior and um, anticipate what they're going to do next, or um, various other uh, things along those lines, which I'm being sort of cagey here because I want to actually expand the conception of mind reading, but we'll we'll get to that in a little bit. So the false belief task is the sort of the the starting point of the mind reading literature. And a lot of the mind reading literature and philosophy and, and uh experimental psychology was built around this. Um and it's not that anybody thought that all there really is to mind reading and to understanding others' behavior is attributing beliefs, or attributing false beliefs. Um, But it came to have an outsized role in the uh, mind reading literature, um, because it just seemed like, well, if you can do this, this very difficult task, then, you know, you've made it pretty far in your journey in learning folk psychology. And um, the rest of the stuff will just fall in place. After you get this very key piece of uh, folk psychology, the rest of it will just be there for you. So the two main theories that kind of grew out of um, this literature were called the theory theory and the simulation theory. And both of them share this commitment to explaining how it is that other people, how it is that we attribute mental states, particularly belief, though there is some literature on desire as well, um, how we attribute these mental states to other people. So just in brief, the theory theory basically is the idea um, that how we infer mental states, which are, in a sense, unobservable entities, is a little bit like scientists infer unobservable entities. We have a lot of information and we make an inference to the best explanation about what mental state is causing this behavior and that allows us to make some predictions about what somebody will do next. So I see, um, just to take a sort of silly example, uh, one of my students comes in late to class and she looks towards the front of the classroom and it just so happens that on that day, there's a guest speaker in front of the classroom. So my student hurriedly enters the classroom, looks towards the front of the classroom, and then uh, turns around and walks right out. This is a, a mind reading task. What is she thinking? Why, why did she do that? Um, so on the theory theory, the basic idea is that you take in a bunch of information that you know about your student, about the class, about... Um, how people's behavior interacts with their mental states, how mental states interact with other mental states. And you make an inference about what it is that she believes or what it is that she desires. Um, And then you make a prediction on the basis of that. Um, On the simulation theory, the kind of main contrasting theory, um, you don't have to rely on all this information, this kind of rich body of uh, theoretical information uh, about other people's psychology, you just, in a sense, kind of put yourself in that person's shoes and simulate what you would be thinking and feeling, um, in that situation. And then just project that to or attribute that to the other person. So, um, you can get the same results and get the same belief attributions with either the theory theory or the simulation theory. Um, in this case, it's plausible that both theoretical inference and uh, simulation would get you to the verdict that the student thought she walked into the wrong classroom, uh, and then she's going to go outside and check her, check the classroom number and then come back inside. When she realizes that I'm still there and all of her classmates are there, um, she'll come back and sit down in the classroom. Uh, but this is the basic idea. So the theory theory and the simulation theory ha- share this commitment to um, explaining how it is that we attribute mental states, especially belief, but they have a difference in the process that they think leads to this belief attribution. Um, those are the kind of the two main theories that um, dominated the literature for several decades uh, and then it kind of uh, sputtered out a little bit and people, stopped offering this kind of monolithic theory theory and the monolithic simulation theory and started um, articulating more hybrid versions of these few that um, saw a role for both theoretical inference and simulational inferences as well.
0: Yeah, that was my understanding. It kind of devolved into a little bit of both mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and also a difficulty in kind of Distinguishing them because the more that each one got refined, the more they seemed to move together. Yeah, yeah.
1: It was just a sort of dividing up the pies. Like, okay, you take this category, I take that <laughs> category, and um, then I think it lost a lot of steam when that started to happen. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: so, uh, so there's been so since then.
0: I mean, things have gotten a bit revived. I think uh, it it sort of. Became this internecine quarrel. Um, but people coming from somewhat different backgrounds, like Sean Gallagher, the phenomenological tradition, um, and then uh, Kristen Andrews from uh, the animal cognition uh, tradition, these people started criticizing that debate or the various theories of mind reading from very different perspectives. Um, could you say something about, you know, how they kind of opened up the, the debate and kind of rejuvenated it in a way?
1: Yeah, they did. So in really, really different ways, actually. So Sean Gallagher and Daniel Hutto uh, and various other figures in the, the 4E movement, um, so, there's embodied cognition, extended cognition, and active cognition, and um, oh, who knows what the fourth one is? Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's so many of them. They call it the four E's. Um, but the, I primarily focus on embodied cognition. They have slightly different um, versions of their critiques of kind of mainstream cognitive science, but um, embodied cognition. Uh, The the challenge to mind reading stems from a more central challenge to cognitivism in general. So embodied cognition is just really skeptical of the idea that the best way to understand the mind is in terms of these internal mental representations and the computations over these representations. Um, So it's a really Uh fundamental disagreement with a lot of psychology and with a lot of philosophy. Um, the embodied social cognition version of this is just an application of that. So it thinks that, uh, so it was John Gallagher, for example, thinks that we don't need to resort to um, attributing beliefs to other people Um, We can get by with um, what he calls body reading. So we don't need to attribute mental states. We don't need to attribute beliefs or desires. We can just see in somebody's body language what it is that they're doing and um, anticipate what they're going to do next on the basis of um, really minimally mentalistic things. Uh, So it's like norms and behavioral scripts. Um, things like that. So we don't have to attribute beliefs to other people Mm -hmm. um, or desires or intentions and things like that. And so there's this kind of movement to look at this, look at social cognition um, from top to bottom really differently. So um, in terms of um, the sort of psychological stuff, in terms of the neural mechanisms, right, they're, they're looking for ways to excise mental states, some of them, some embodied cognition theorists are more radical about this. And so they, they think that you just don't need mental content at all. You don't need intentionality at all. So Daniel Hutto and uh, Eric Mayan are all into this camp. They are just really skeptical of the idea of mental content and intentionality. Um Others are less uh, they don't go down that road, so they're they're less radical. Um, they just think we can explain a lot of social cognition without resorting to these um, sort of uh, conceptual devices we don't We don't use mind reading all the time, though of course we are capable of it. Mm-hmm. um so that's the kind of embodied cognition challenge the challenge coming from people like Kristen Andrews and Victoria McGear and uh, tad Zawidzki, who offer a more pluralistic view of folk psychology is really different so there's no skepticism about cognitivism implicit in their views um, I think they accept the the cognitivist uh, viewpoint just as much as uh, the mainstream, philosophers and psychologists do. But what they're pushing is the idea that mind reading is just a really minor way, minor tool, I should say, of in our toolkit for understanding other people. Uh, Along with mind reading, we also have what um, Tad Zewiski calls mind shaping, it's not that we're trying to read others' minds. We're trying to shape others' minds to be more predictable and to be more along the lines that are um, kind of established in our culture. So when I tell somebody, like when I tell my daughter, for example, um, but you like pizza. You know, she's currently like, on a pizza boycott. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not, you know, like reading her mind. I'm trying to get her to uh, make her mind more in line with what I think it should be. I think I'm reminding her, trying to get her to be rational, to sort of like, oh, that's right. You have said that you liked pizza in the past and you want to conform your behavior and conform your mindset to this way of being. Um, the problem is that she's too and irrational. So that didn't work. But um, there's this idea that there's just a lot more to understanding other people than attributing beliefs. So Kristen um, Andrews writes about the role of stereotypes in um, our understanding other people. Um, and uh, Victoria McGear writes about uh, regulative folk psychology. It's, this is a, a lot like uh, mind shaping, where what we're trying to do is kind of with the use of norms uh, that dominate our social interactions, we're trying to regulate our interactions and regulate other people, and importantly, regulate ourselves, right? So we're, when we tell uh, ourselves that, you know, this is, you know, I want to go for a run. Part of what I'm doing is making, making it the case that I want to go for a run. There's something important about saying this out loud or, or writing it down or telling somebody else. Um, and when I tell a student, you know, you're just, you're good. You're just having a hard time. I'm trying to get them to adopt that attitude too. So it's not all about trying to figure out what somebody's mental states are. It's also about what shaping what they are. Um, so their challenge is really different from the embodied cognition challenge. Um, in a sense, they want to add more tools to the toolkit. And I'm much more sympathetic to this view. Um, my own perspective is that the pluralistic folk psychology view endorsed by uh, these theorists is more or less on target. The, the criticism I have is that you can't actually separate mind reading from these other tools, what I go to links in the book to argue is that attributing beliefs and mind mind reading in the narrow sense, attributing beliefs and, and desires and intentions, is just inextricably linked with the stereotypes that we have, with the norms that we are abiding by, with our desire to shape other people, with our desire to manipulate a situation, um, with our desire to confirm our own worldview, or you know, boost our own self esteem like these are all intertwined in really messy messy ways. So um it's a mistake to think that you can say something about mind reading that's separate from um the way that you treat these other things.
0: Um okay, so this idea that that it's all intertwined in a messy way as you just mentioned, are are there any ways to to clarify that? I mean, how do you think that might be theoretically illuminated in some way.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's complicated, but the way that I try to do this in the book is to, um, separate out the factors that serve as an input to mind reading, like the things that, um, you pay attention to and the factors that influence the mind reading process and the factors that influence the mind reading output. Um, so, this is not the only way that you can think of this. It's just particularly helpful for me to think of it this way. So, something like the situational context that you find yourself in is hugely important in figuring out what kind of mental state uh, somebody's going to attribute to another person. So, um, we are all really familiar with the uh, killings of uh, unarmed black men um that compare sort of comparing that to the situations where you have uh say an armed uh white man who is belligerent but somehow comes out of the situation unscathed and arrested without being um harmed or or killed no less. So I talk about this in various papers and in the book and Part of what's going on here, no, though by no means all, is that the situational context that you find, that you, anybody, um, or police officers in this particular example find themselves in, is just really influential in how you interpret what you're seeing. So if you see this interaction uh, you know, on an urban street corner at, at night and a place that's sort of notoriously dangerous, you're going to see this interaction through a certain lens. Um, if you see this interaction, uh, you know, Sunday morning, we're <laughs> like on the corner of a church in a predominantly white neighborhood, you'll see this very same interaction, just really differently. Mm-hmm. And you don't That's not the sort of thing that you have easy reflective access to. It just shapes the way that you see things. Um, It shapes what you pay attention to. It shapes the kind of the scripts that you're employing. So uh, when you're looking at an interaction, you pretty immediately uh, kind of try to figure out what's going on. You infer personality traits, like, is this person aggressive? Is that person hostile? Is that person being funny? Um, All of that kind of happens just in a sense, behind your eyes, like you're, it, it's just influencing what you see. Mm-hmm. Um So that's one way in which this stuff is sort of influencing the input to mind reading, right? That's not, you know, that's not mind reading there. That's right. This is this research on social psychi- psychology showing you how the situation you're in and other things, um, like your your stereotypes, et cetera, influence how you perceive somebody else, and then you go on to attribute beliefs and desires and other sorts of mental states as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the kind of input side. On the output side, um, there's um, in the traditional mind reading literature, what was focused on was just explanation and prediction. The, all you really do with your mental state attributions is explain and predict behavior. Um, and I think one of the things that the pluralistic folk psychology view does really well is to say that actually we do lots of things with our um, with our mental state attributions. Sometimes we are uh, just moralizing. You see this. Um, a lot on social media, uh, it, you're just sort of broadcasting to people, uh, your, your view on a, a situation. You're not actually trying to predict. You're not actually trying to explain. You're just, in a sense, trying to, uh, judge. Um, sometimes you're trying to cat like you're confused. You're trying to c- categorize the behavior. You don't really, you know, necessarily care what they're going to do next. You're just, you know, want to have a handy category to put this in, um, other times it really matters to you that you get it right. So you you are trying to figure out exactly what somebody is thinking and um, make an accurate prediction because you want to, you know, intervene or because you want to interact or you want to manipulate the situation. Um, there are lots of things that we do on the output side with uh, our mental state attributions. Um, so, I mean, I have this kind of uh, way of dividing things up um, where things get sort of less messy. Like there's sort of categories that, you know, the input and the processing and the output. Um, but one thing to know is that it just is messy. I mean, this is a real psychological phenomenon or phenomena. And, um, you can bring to bear this kind of, um, conceptual framework for understanding the different categories, but it's not like in any person who is engaged in mind reading, they can easily separate out all these influences. It's, um, you know, I think pretty opaque to the person who is mind reading, um, uh, what exactly these influences are. So, I mean, I hope that the way of dividing these influences, uh, is helpful, but that shouldn't lead us to believe that it's really easy to tell what's influencing me when I'm mind reading, um, -hmm. In a lot of cases, it, it just happens really fast, and I'm um, cognitively burdened already, so I'm not really paying attention.
0: So let me just um, follow up on something that you mentioned about the context, for example, in the, the case of you know, police shooting a black man and the white man gets away unscathed. Uh, these, these exact sorts of cases come up in discussions of the contents of perception, mm-hmm. Um, and in fact um, uh, um I'm trying to think uh just the idea that people that the actual content of what you see is itself in some way uh differs as opposed to the idea that you perceive something and then you interpret it in a certain way in the light of whatever implicit beliefs or those sorts of um, aspects that are also going on in your psychology. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was just wondering, um, do you have any sort of theoretical position on this, whether perception itself is in some way cognitively penetrated or, or something along those lines, roughly kind of Susanna Siegel's mm-hmm. work in in uh, perception, or are you more along the lines of, you no, know, you know, what you perceive is just... In some sense, not at least penetrated in some way, but clearly, we interpret this farther down in the cognitive processing. Do you have any insight on that on that issue?
1: Yeah, so I thought about this in a slightly different context, so one of one kind of uh, dimension of the embodied cognition challenge to mind reading is to claim that we don't have to infer mental states because we can see mental states. Um, We can see other people's beliefs. We can see their emotions. We can see their intentions. We don't have to engage in this theoretical process or the simulational process. Like all of that is just uh, a bunch of intellectual uh, practice that we don't need to engage in because we can just simply see what somebody's trying to do. Um, And I've tried to kind of, figure out what this really means, like in a metaphorical sense, it's no problem, but like, we right. kind of break it down. Like what, what in fact does that actually mean? Does that mean that, and just to take the case of intentions, does that mean that intentions are observable? Um, what are the observable aspects of intentions? Um, what in fact does it mean to infer? Like there just seems to be, um, uh, this difficulty, which is not actually limited to this area of philosophy, Um, but this difficulty in figuring out what an inference actually is, it turns out to be a really tricky issue. Um, So in a a series of papers on what I call direct social perception, uh, I try to kind of figure out what the best case scenario is for the idea that we can actually perceive in this thick sense uh, other people's uh, mental states. Um, and it's, so I argue, uh, that the best way to go, if you want to uh, argue that we can perceive mental states is to go Susanna Siegel's route rather than arguing that we don't need inferences because nobody really has an account of inference on hand and the possible accounts seem to beg the question against uh, uh, mind reading views. Um, a better route is to say that the content of our perception is just richer than the mind reading theorist would uh, argue. And I think that this is actually a little bit plausible for things like emotions. Like, I think emotions are, um, uh, at least some particular emotions like fear and disgust and anger, are uh, just inextricably tied to, uh, behavioral emanations to, um, uh, uh, facial expressions and things like that. Um, even if they're not, you know, conceptually or necessarily tied to these things. Um, so I think the content of perception route might be a, a reasonable way to go for things like emotions or things like, um, like motor intentions or sort of basic intentions, um, though not like uh, future directed intentions or, um, the things that, uh, action theorists care about like Michael Bratton. Um, so I, th- I think that's a way that one could go, but my argument in these papers and my, my kind of view that I don't express in the book, um, is that that only gets you so far. Uh If you really um, need some more machinery on top of that, if you're really going to explain uh, a lot of social cognition. So I think that um, that gets you a little ways, uh, but not very far. Okay. Um, So
0: tell us about your model theory. I guess that's you, you present a, Well, it's called the Model Theory, um, with a capital M, and you present it as a, basically a version of the theory theory. Uh, Could you say, tell us a little bit about about your overall
1: model? Sure. Um, So the Model Theory is uh, taken from uh, this idea that Heidi Meibom originally articulated uh, in a couple of different papers, um, boy, 2005, I think 2003 for one of them, um, and she sort of did the kind of basic footwork in laying out these different models that one can employ. You Can employ folk psychological models, or this kind of like social model, like a set sort of institutional models, different kinds of models for understanding different uh, interactions or different phenomena. And, uh, Peter Godfrey Smith kind of picked up this idea in a paper or two and tried to, uh, do a little bit more work. But the idea was kind of shelved. Like it didn't really get much traction in part, I think, because of, uh, something we mentioned at the very beginning was that the, this is about the time that the mind reading literature just kind of stalled out and people got a little bored with, um, dividing the pie and, figuring out the simulation theory, get this one, or does theory theory get this, this one behavioral phenomenon? Um, So there was just sort of left um, out there for a while. Uh, So what I wanted to do in the book and what I'm continuing to do in projects afterwards is take this very kind of um, general framework of the model theory and, see if we can use it to make sense of all the messy stuff that I talk about in the book. So the basic idea is that we, in understanding other people and other social interactions and um, maybe even understanding um, things that aren't people like animals, um, we employ these folk psychological models. And there's just a basic core tenant or tenants to these models um, that Uh, are as common amongst all the different models. And that is the idea that there are um, ways of representing the world. So there's a kind of, if you want to use direction of fit talk, there's um, the world representing the mind and the mind representing the world. So something like a belief and something like a desire. Um, There's the basic idea that um, mental states can sort of interact with each other um, and influence how you interact with the world. But beyond that, um, the kinds of models that we employ can vary pretty dramatically. So, um, just to give a few different, uh, examples, um, if I'm on a job search committee and I'm trying to hire a new colleague, somebody who in all likelihood, is going to work closely with me, uh, somebody who's going to be on committees with me, uh, somebody who's, uh, you know, in an area that's sort of close to mine. So we might even get to, um, collaborate on projects together. Um, we have a small department and I wanted to be a collegial department and it matters to me that we hire somebody who's going to be a good fit. Um, so in the interview process, I'm thinking really hard about what this person is like, um, building on, on my view, building's kind of folk psychological model of this person. You know, what sort of values do they have? You know, are they going to be somebody who's willing to be on committees? Are they going to do the you know the tedious work of a service in the department? Are they going to resist that? Um, are they going to be happy in small town Oklahoma? You know, not everybody is. What kind of, uh, you know, family life are they going to have here? Does that matter to them at all? Um, things like this, I'm kind of building up a a model of that person and it matters to me that I get it right. So I invest a lot of time thinking about this and comparing it to the other candidates and seeing whether, um, you know, they're different in, in ways that are relevant. Um, So In this case, I'm building a pretty rich folk psychological model of this person, and I'm using this to make predictions about uh, how they might fit in in this place um, and what they might be like as colleagues. In other cases, the model that I use is way more schematic than that, in part because I don't have the time or desire to... Uh, build uh, this rich folk psychological model. So when I go to um, the store and I go through the self-checkout and there's a little person who is, uh, you know, minding the self-checkout line and they, you know, are making small talk with uh, various um, people who are in the self-checkout line. I don't bother to think very hard about this person's um, beliefs or desires or intentions or the, you know, how they feel about living in small town, Oklahoma. I mean, what I really need is for to catch their attention when inevitably the, the scale stops working. Um, right. I don't need to think very hard about uh, anything very deep. But, it, you know, I do need to think of them as a, a person, uh, you know, somebody uh, whose attention needs to be caught um and that I communicate clearly with them so like the the model that i use there is just much more schematic I mean, these are two very extreme examples, Um, but the idea is and and the the, the project of future work is to kind of figure out the the different varieties of models or different Mm -hmm. families of models, I should say, um, and see how we employ them. And we employ them in fiction when we're like watching reality TV, uh, when we're reading novels, when we're interacting with other people on the road. Um, the idea is um, we kind of build these models to greater and lesser detail uh, in order to understand and interact with other people so how um how
0: do we just have do we just make these models of persons or i'm thinking at a more rather than a token level at a at a type level so so for example, when you have time to build up a model like of your, you know, potential colleague. Uh, that's, that's, that's one way. Um, but there's, in the case of the officer, right. Who comes across the person who they've never presumably encountered before. Right. Um, uh, I, I would assume they're using a model, but there's no time for them to develop a model of that person. In fact, I wouldn't, necessarily even make sense for them to develop a model of that person. So can, can there be models that are just
1: of types or classes? Well, so stereotypes play a really big role in my view of um, even very detailed models. Um, so the stereotypes that we have Uh, And so I I mean stereotypes in uh, just a neutral way, like they're just beliefs we have about groups of people um, and and members of groups of people. Um, So these could be positive or negative or or neutral. Um, The stereotypes we have play a really important role. So I would imagine in um, situations where um, it's sort of fast moving, that there's not a lot of reflection on um, the person – the him or herself that we're interacting with. But we are using a sort of model of this, like it, the, one that is sort of by and large based on stereotypes. Um, in cases where the interaction is quite fast, you don't have much else to go on. Um, but you you do have a script for this interaction, and the script is um, pretty laden with stereotypes, um, again, in this sort of um, technically neutral way. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess I, I, there's no reason to think that you can't have different sorts of models. But I'm just interested in folk psychological models, and I think in that sort of case that you describe, um, there are there could be schematic models uh, available to you, um, so long as you're interacting with this uh, individual as a person and not just a moving object.
0: Right. Okay.
1: So it sounds somewhat. I mean, I'm sure you you know.
0: Albert Naven's work, right? Mm-hmm. He he's he seems to be developing something similar. He
1: does, yes. Okay.
0: Um. So how does how does simulation fit into this? Is this just part of the? So that seems to be just a different sort of process than building a model. How do, how does the simulation aspect? Um, relate to the model?
1: Yeah, good. So there are models that uh, have simulational elements. So one of the processes I describe in the book is um, when you're engaged in a relatively fast interaction or an interaction where uh, it doesn't really matter to you that you get it right. You're using efficiency as a, a primary motivator rather than accuracy, um, here's one sort of simulational process that uh, there could be others, but here's just one that that falls into um, my kind of overall picture is when you um, project your own mental states onto somebody that you regard as relevantly similar to you. Um, so when you think of somebody as, you know, more or less like you in some particular way, they share your values or they're, you know, a working parent or they are, you know, a single white female or something along those lines. Um, and it doesn't matter to you that you get it right. Like it's just a kind of quick interaction. Um, then you simply just project your own perspective onto that person. And this is a simulational process where you sort of figure out what it is that you think about something or what you, what you already know that you figure out about something and then you just attribute it to this other person. Um, that's a way in which some models could be built on my view. So my view is a version of the theory theory because I, I view this kind of information rich process, um model construction. Um, that's more in line with the theory theory view of things than the simulational theory view because the simulational theory view, um, If there's one thing that's common amongst all the various versions of simulation theory, it's that it's an information poor process. You don't need to resort to this um, rich body of folk psychological information to understand other people. You just need to use your own mechanisms to simulate somebody else and then attribute that to other people. Um, And I think we can do that. That is part of the model building process. Um, And that might be pretty dominant for some sorts of models like the one I described. But um, the overall view is a theory theory view because I think that that, that's just one small way in which we understand other people and it can be folded into the the theory theory writ large.
0: Okay. So it makes me think of the, I think it's called the fundamental attribution bias or something Mm -hmm. Uh, or, or at least uh, there, there there's certainly biases in psychology where we, Tend to think that other people are more like us than they actually are, mm-hmm. right? So I guess that would fit well into that aspect of the model theory.
1: That's right. So one of the ways in which we make mistakes, so I kind of in the book go through the the prospect for accuracy and and the various strategies we use to understand other people, um, and one of the ways we might make a mistake is in inferring that somebody's too much like us. Um, Another way in which we mistake is uh, make mistakes is uh, quite different. Is that we infer that somebody's just really different from us, and so we rely on stereotypes instead of just what we could have done, which was to uh, you know, well, how do you feel about this, uh, and then project that onto somebody else. Um, yeah, so there are different ways in which we might make those mistakes. Right.
0: Well, that brings up—I uh, don't know if you talked about this, or at least not in detail. How, how do these models get modified? I mean, there seem to be um, there there seem to be problems. There might be between what's in a model once it's created, and then updating it in the light of new information. So, do you have any insight into not just the idea that we? We create these models, however rich or informationally poor they might be, but then how do we update them?
1: Yeah, I don't have like a, a detailed uh, physiological picture of that. So the I'm working at a kind of like psychological level. Um, so this might f- feel a little squishy <laughs> uh, in, in some ways. Um, so, so the basic idea is like – you know, sometimes we don't update the model in any meaningful ways. Um, Sometimes the uh, power of, for better, for lack of a better word, the anchoring effect is just really um, hard to resist. Like you, Mm -hmm. you inferred that it was like this, and it's really hard for you to see it in any any meaningfully way difference. Um, So this is the first way that you understood it and um, you kind of, Don't pay attention to the ways in which the signals that you're getting aren't conforming to the model that you have. Um, In other cases, it's just really obvious that there's a mismatch between what it is that you thought was happening and what it is is really happening. Um, And that might be because a prediction is false, um, or it might be because there's just a glaring inconsistency. With uh, your stereotype, for example, or the norms that you have for how this person should interact and what they're what they seem to be doing. So one of the projects I have is to combine the model theory that I have with some work that Evan Westra from Toronto is doing on um, Bayesian predictive coding. So he also works on mind reading and has got this idea that we can make sense of how people attribute um, character traits or stereotypes to other people in this hierarchical predictive coding model. Uh, and so we are in the very early stages of kind of meshing our viewpoints to make uh, the model theory less squishy.
0: Uh-huh. Okay.
1: Yeah, that was that was something
0: that did occur to me, but I'm um, glad you brought it up. Um, so what are, I mean, you, you, you end the book discussing some of the epistemic and ethical implications of mind reading and and your reassessment of mind reading. Um, and in particular, the issue of epistemic injustice when certain people are either not paid attention to, uh, uh, or Or not attributed the appropriate level of expertise that they ought to be, um could you say something about these uh epistemic and ethical implications of your view?
1: Sure, yes, yeah, so I was um involved in uh, a few different um, conferences on um Intellectual humility and understanding that were put on by the Templeton Foundation, and at these conferences, they had a lot of work on epistemic injustice and peer disagreement, the epistemology of peer disagreement. And I, in, I'll take the uh, peer disagreement case first because it just struck me as somebody who studies mind reading—that is how we understand others perspectives and how we figure out what other people are thinking, it just struck me that the peer disagreement literature was um, just unreasonably sanitized. So the the idea with the peer disagreement literature is this question of what should you do when somebody you take to be an epistemic peer, that is somebody who is comparably uh, rational, comparably informed, comparably, you know, well motivated, and you know they have the, the same sorts of uh, good intentions that you do. Um, when they disagree with you about something, um, and the idea seemed to be that you could take these two different tacks. Um, if somebody who has equal knowledge or comparable knowledge, there's some sort of debate about um, how we distinguish these things, um, and yet they disagree with you, you should um, you know stick to your guns because. You know, if you guys are equally competent and equally knowledgeable and equally rational, then um, there's no reason why you should discount your own uh, judgment there. And the other tact seemed to be that if you have this case where you have a peer who's an epistemic peer who's disagreeing with you, uh, you should conciliate. You should, um, you know, have less confidence in your own view because somebody who has just as much knowledge and just as much, um, you know, rationality as you do has disagreed with you. So that should lead you to kind of, um, take pause. And I'm coming at this, you know, from the perspective of thinking like, not only is it that we never have equal uh, knowledge, um, it's the judgment of who's an epistemic peer is never so clean cut. It's, we're, Never perfectly accurate about judging who has equal or even comparable knowledge or who has equal or even comparable rational ability or uh intentions, so that debate about peer disagreement seems to be picked up with picked up from the starting point of okay, somebody's a, an epistemic peer. What do you do when they disagree um And my worry is that the stuff that comes before that how you judge somebody who's an epistemic peer. Uh, it is really well documented in the social psychology literature, even setting aside some of the experiments that, uh, or paradigms that have um, replicability issues. It's really well documented that um, some demographics get sort of automatically down, or I should say, not automatically, but um, in many situations get downgraded epistemically and some get upgraded. So, for example, um there is this um, tendency to regard elderly individuals as incompetent um so there's this kind of um uh trade offs between. Um, competence and likability. So sometimes you'll find somebody like a, say, an elderly woman who is regarded as incompetent because she's uh, elderly, but she's regarded as warm because she's a woman, because it's another association that we have. So you regard uh, typically the emotion that's associated with this is pity, like you, you like the lady, but she's incompetent. Mm-hmm. Um, so, this is Susan Fiske's work. That's right. Um, yeah. So the idea that we can just kind of come to judge that somebody's an epistemic peer ignores all these influences, um, that somebody might actually be an epistemic superior to us. And just in virtue of these associations and the, the inferences that go along with them, we will infer that they are an epistemic peer or perhaps even uh, an epistemic subordinate rather than an epistemic superior. Um, So with respect to the uh, epistemology of peer disagreement literature, I just think there's a a lot that needs to go into how we judge whether somebody is subordinate, a peer or superior. Um, And that would really change what we should do after that point. Mm -hmm. So, you know, should we infer that, should we conciliate or should we remain steadfast? Um, It really depends on uh, the process leading up to the judgment that somebody uh, is epistemically inferior, sup- or appear, or um, um, superior? Okay.
0: So, yeah, this also comes up in, I think, in the epistemology of testimony as well. That's right. Um, so, so, what? I mean, uh, I think we have time for one final substantive question. Um, so, a lot of, a lot of the book, what the book is doing overall, is, is kind of updating the philosophical framework in which we think. About mind reading and social cognition more generally, and that's being done by incorporating various insights from you know developmental but mainly I think social psychology. what does this new improved <laughs> let's assume uh, philosophical framework provide to the psychologists or economists or, you know, any of the other groups, right? It's so at this point, it looks like we're playing catch up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the question is, well, what are we doing that can actually go the other way?
1: Yeah. So, um, so one point about the psychologists, maybe not the, the social psychology. Well, I mean, psychologists in general, so developmental, cognitive, and, and social, um, is that there's just not been a lot of overlap with social psychology and these other disciplines and philosophy in general. So um, this is, so social psychologists reading this are going to probably read a lot of philosophy that they're just not familiar with, um, even though they've been working on... Um, Things in social cognition, they don't typically understand this in terms of mind reading. They don't have that sort of conceptual framework for understanding things. Um, Uh So the divorce between social psychology and philosophy and developmental psychology and cognitive psychology more generally is um, been sort of deep from the beginning of this mind reading literature. Uh, So part of what the social psychologist ought to get out of this is just that there's this field that's been running, um, not quite in parallel, but, you know, in the neighborhood, uh, that is actually really relevant to the stuff that they are working on. But just kind of zooming out a little bit, what I think that, I mean, so this is a question really about interdisciplinary research in general. Um, and what I think philosophers are really good at uh, is, of course, this sort of conceptual analysis and um, just thinking through uh, concepts and seeing whether they're consistent, um, but also doing this kind of synthesis work of looking at different fields and figuring out um what are the ideas and how are they matching up with the the ideas in this uh, other field? And how do we make sense? How do we put all of this together? Like which are the parts that uh, cohere well together, which are the parts that don't cohere well together. And this of course is not research that philosophers are uniquely able to do. Similarly, it's not that psychologists are uniquely able to run experiments. Philosophers can run experiments as well. It's just that we're each trained to be particularly good at this part So philosophers are trained to be really good at this sort of synthesis work, at this kind of looking at different conceptual frameworks and different um, schema to figure out how to make sense of all of this together. Psychologists could do this. They haven't. Um, Philosophers could do this. I think that they've done uh, quite a bit more of that, and I'm hoping they do more to incorporate the social psychology. Um, So I think the, the thing that we get out of this, we in a, a kind of general uh, sense, is just this bigger picture of understanding other people um, that just has not been put together in any meaningful way. Okay. Um,
0: so we have time for one last question, which is what is next for you? Are you working on a follow-up or what sort of projects are are in your immediate horizon?
1: So there are a few. Um, so one is a project on model theory, which I describe in the book. Um, and this is the project with um, uh, Evan Westra. So we are co-editing, uh, along with Kristen Andrews, a, a special issue in Synthes on pluralistic bulk psychology. And we are uh, contributing papers or hopefully contributing papers uh, on that uh, topic as well to Synthes. Um, So that's one project that uh, I'm working on that's pretty relevant to the stuff in the book. Hopefully that will give a little bit more meat to model theory. Another project that comes up in the book a little bit is uh, my work with Guillermo De Penal on uh, implicit bias. Uh, We have this model of implicit bias that we lay out in a recent paper in Mind and Language that's based on... Uh, this well-established framework for concept learning, and we are doing a follow-up paper to that on the issue of whether implicit biases are beliefs. Um, finally, a third project that's not quite as tightly tied to the, the project in the book is the a project on the development of empathy. So I, along with um, Rita Svetlova and Rosalie and uh, Thomas Nadelhofer and Hannah Reed, all from Duke, um, are engaged in this project that is an fMRI study of kiddos and the processes, the neural mechanisms for empathy and how they develop over time. And the hope is once we get that study off the ground, funded for now, we're hoping to get Um, some more funding from the NIH to extend this to how we have empathy towards in-group and out-group members in a developmental Mm -hmm. framework. So when it is that we start to be less empathetic towards out-group members and what uh, particular out-group members, um, this... uh, what. Not like the whether it's gender or class or like when these sorts of outgroupings uh, start to make a difference uh, to Uh kind of get this better picture of how these social biases develop over time. Cool. What what age group are you looking at? So we are looking at five to or five to. I think 11 or five to eight right now. um, And then we'll get older. So we had this, (laughs) the reason I'm hesitating is like, we had this concern about braces um, in the fMRI scanner. So we wanted to avoid the age at which kid get braces because then they couldn't go in the scanner. Yeah. Right. Huh.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. I guess like at age 11 or 12, that starts to be a problem. That's right. yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: See, one of these things that philosophers just don't often think about.
0: Yeah, well, you know, you'd be surprised. <laughs> so that sounds very, very cool. Yeah. Um, but we are, we are out of time for now, but uh, I appreciate your talking about your book with us and I wish you luck with these exciting new projects. Thank you. It's really fun to talk to you. Great. Well, thanks again and good luck. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Shannon Spalding, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Oklahoma State University. We've been talking about her new book, How We Understand Others Philosophy and Social Cognition, which is just out from Routledge. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoy the podcast, and thank you for listening.